The title of this session is an interlude, God and the Presence of Evil. I won't tell you that it's session 33, that might be a little depressing. This study of the last things has opened our eyes to many new concepts, new interpretations, new facts and revelations. It has certainly broadened our perspective and understanding of the last things, as well as challenged a number of our preconceived notions. Some of you may still be chewing on those preconceived notions. I believe that now is an opportune time to interrupt our examination of the third parenthetical visions found in Revelation 11:15 to 15:8 to interrupt with a deeper examination of a topic that has arisen over the last few sessions to it God and the presence of evil at the end of session 31 on October the 2nd I challenged us with the following in this and earlier sessions, we have learned of Satan's almost constant presence before the throne of God, slandering, falsely accusing the righteous. Yet this teacher, in this and other classes, especially during our study of the Thessalonian letters, has often expressed the point that the resurrection of believers is necessary to give us glorified bodies suitable for the presence of God for he cannot abide sinful flesh in his presence. Well, I concluded, which is it? One cannot get more sinful than Satan, yet there he is standing before God and his Christ in heaven. The question for which we need an answer I posed at the time, if God cannot permit sinful, unglorified believers in his presence, how then can he abide Satan and his angels? What are we missing? Now, over the last few months, a new understanding has been percolating in my feeble mind, growing bit by bit, pieces added here and there during this study, and an understanding that I believe central to this study of the eschaton, bringing me to the following conclusion. I believe that most of us, Perhaps, especially those of us born and raised in the church, have been left with a rather narrow perception of God the Father and his heaven. There are subtleties and nuances to him and his heaven that were not taught us in Sunday school. Nor have they been taught much from the pulpit. I do not mean that as a criticism. It's simply a subject that does not come up that often in the evangelical community. The spark that ignited this session's topic was the contemplation of Satan, along with his cohort of evil angels, we learn which is one-third of all the angels in heaven, retaining access to God's heaven even after inciting Adam's fall in the garden. This means that even now, since some point prior to man's fall in Eden until roughly the middle of the tribulation, still future to us, even now Satan, the very essence of evil, retains access to the dwelling of a holy God. My guess is that most of us have made peace, made our peace with a holy God using or working through pagan, even evil men to accomplish his will on earth. The Bible's full of it. All we need to do is return to the Exodus narrative to see this in practice. Let's return to Exodus. Let's look at that. Exodus 7. And let's read verses 2 to 5. 
You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. In other words, it was God himself who caused the king of Egypt to reject the signs as insufficient proof to permit Israel to leave Egypt. He had a hard heart. God made it hard. God's purpose was to compound the evidence, increasing the suffering so as to make a more dramatic statement of his power. Now, we might expect a God who so loves Israel, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, where God says, why do I love you? Because I love you. Not because of who you are or what you've done. I love you because I love you. He loves Israel. We might expect a God who so loves Israel to do everything in his power, which is, of course, limitless. To smooth the way for Israel. We might expect him to control the Pharaoh's heart in the other direction, for him to immediately release them at his first opportunity. But God's agenda is not ours. He will be glorified. And he'll do it in his own way, not ours. Closer to home for us is this study of the last things. We see essentially the same thing happening during the tribulation. God is compounding the misery, working through Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet, all three evil to the core, about as bad as you can get to, by contrast, reveal His holiness and to make it crystal clear that He, the Lord God, will not abide the rejection of His Messiah. One dose of His wrath will not be sufficient, but He will express it again and again and again. Because of these and many more instances in God's Word in which He works through unbelievers to accomplish His sovereign will, we're probably at peace with God doing this on earth. We're accustomed to that. But for many of us, it's difficult to swallow the idea that God is employing some of the same tactics within heaven itself. I'd like to organize our discussion with, around a series of questions. First, if heaven is currently such a perfect paradise without sin, why will God one day replace it with a new heaven? Revelation 21, 1-4. Let me repeat that. If heaven is currently such a perfect paradise without sin, why will God one day replace it with a new heaven? That's long been a question for me that I've kind of just pushed to the side. Every time I read that passage, chapter 21 of Revelation, I think, well, I, I get that you want to start over with the earth. We know how bad that is. That makes perfect sense. Heaven? Why do we need a new heaven? Well, let's consider a few facts about the current heaven and Father God. God, omnipotent and omniscient, certainly knew that one of his upper echelon angels, his beautiful anointed cherub who covers, Ezekiel 28, 11-15, would eventually turn against him, tempt Adam and Eve, and cause the downfall of all mankind in his very good creation. Yet he permitted that to play out. Until the middle of the tribulation, Satan and his evil angels will have access to heaven. 
anyone who dies prior to the rapture will be with the Lord. We know that. But will not yet have their glorified resurrection body. In heaven there is indeed weeping and sorrow. For example, a passage we studied a ways back, Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Finally, at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. There will be a veritable sea of sinners in the presence of God. It says, quote, standing before the throne, end quote. My guess is that most of us today think of heaven as a place of sinless perfection and peace, a place of unending unadulterated joy, a place of purity in which all in attendance worship a holy and righteous God. But that does not describe the current heaven. It describes the new heaven. Not brought into existence until the very end of the last things. Let me read a portion of an answer offered by Dr. Roger Barrier to someone raising the same question we are addressing. This person wrote, Dear Roger, I'm just confused on one point. Where does it say that Satan has open access to heaven? And there are scriptures that say no sin can dwell in the presence of God, so heaven isn't where God is right now? Question mark. Sincerely, Seth. Dear Seth, we hear all the time from people that there is no sin in heaven. Who says so? Question mark, exclamation mark. Most people don't realize that Satan has open access to heaven even now. We think of heaven as a place of perfection and peace where there is no more sorrow, no more sin. We are thinking of the permanent heaven and not the present heaven. God will one day erect a new heaven and earth because the present heaven is soiled with sin. Unfortunately, there is pain and suffering in the present heaven, in present heaven. And he cites Revelation 6. God does not remove all the tears from heaven until Revelation 21, when he puts the permanent heaven into place. We must be careful not to confuse the present heaven with the permanent heaven. At the end time, God will create a new permanent heaven and a new earth where there are no longer any tears or sins. Dr. Roger Barrier. Randy Alcorn, former pastor and currently founder and director of Eternal Perspective Ministries, writes, People usually think of heaven as the place Christians go when they die. A better definition explains that heaven is God's central dwelling place, the location of his throne from which he rules the universe. Many don't realize that the present pre-resurrection heaven and future post-resurrection heaven are located in different places. The exact location of the present heaven is unknown, but we're told the future heaven will be located on the new earth. The present heaven is a place of transition between believers' past lives on earth and future resurrection lives on the new earth. Life in the present heaven which theologians call the intermediate heaven, is better by far 
than living here on earth under the curse, Philippians 1.23, but it's not our final destination. That's Randy Alcorn. Now, I, I may not wholly agree with him on his point that the new earth will be the new heaven. And God seems to delineate between the two. There's kind of a blur, but they seem to be two different entities in the final days. Um, I don't strongly disagree with him. I'm just saying, eh, we'll see. Finally, Dr. Robert Jeffress, senior pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes this. Perhaps the concept of a present heaven and a future heaven is a bit confusing to you. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you have a dream that one day when you retire, you will move to the city where all of your children and grandchildren are. Some of you have already done that. That's why you're not in Sunday school. Uh, when the day of your retirement comes, you buy a piece of land to construct the home of your dreams. While that construction project is going on, you've got a place, you've got to have a place to live. So you rent an apartment. It's nice and it's comfortable, but it's not your permanent dwelling place. The same thing is true for Christians when we die. When we die right now, we go into the presence of God. We are aware, we are with our loved ones, but it is a temporary place. God is building a permanent home for us. John 14, 2-3. Now a second question. Does this suggest a possible additional role for the 24 elders and especially the four living creatures around the throne? Revelation 4, 6-11. Let me repeat that. Does this suggest a possible additional role for the 24 elders and especially the four living creatures around the throne? What I'm about to suggest I do in the spirit of the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians about marriage. Some counsel he described as coming from the Lord. He wrote, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. 1 Corinthians 7.10. Other counsel he described as coming not from the Lord, but from him. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Verse 12. Well, not only am I not the Lord, I'm not an apostle. So what I'm about to suggest I offer in the spirit of, for what it's worth, food for thought. Remember, we're working on the understanding the concept of God being comfortable with sin in heaven. The Lord God is indeed holy. In Leviticus 27, 20, verse 7, he told Israel, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Moses also passed along to them that any environment in which the Lord your God walks must be holy. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Deuteronomy 23, 14. Thus we can safely assume, as Psalm 68, 5 states, that where he lives is also holy. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. The prophet Habakkuk seems to echo some of our own questions about a holy God permitting sin and evil, even within his own precincts. From Habakkuk 1, verse 13, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. 
and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Yet, as we have discussed, the totality of the current heaven is far from holy and pure, sinless and perfect. How do we reconcile these two? From a number of passages in God's Word, we get a pretty solid picture of the immediate area around the throne of Father God. I'd like to compare two of these to see their similarity, the visions of John and the vision of Isaiah. Place a finger at Revelation 4 and a second at Isaiah 6, which is where I would like for us to begin. Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. First, let's consider God's immediate throne. Isaiah 6.1 In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Revelation 4.2 Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So the Lord God is seated on His throne, His chair. In, in this context, we're talking about a bench, a seat. It's where he, what He is sitting on. Other descriptions of the throne, other passages, cover more than this. But in, right now, just the chair. The Lord God is seated on his chair, yet all descriptions suggest that the throne itself is positioned higher than the surrounding area, which telegraphs importance, seniority, superiority, perhaps even holiness. The Lord is sitting, but his throne is lofty. It is standing. It's high. Now, God himself. Isaiah does not dare to include a description of the one seated on the throne, but John does in Revelation 4, verse 3. And he who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. That is, so glorious and holy that all the apostle can do is grasp at similar earthly objects. He then continues with a description of the presence of God in verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. No wonder Isaiah was so petrified in his vision. He does not describe God's appearance or even his glory, but he describes the sound of omnipotence. Isaiah 6.4 And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. The prophet Ezekiel offers us further details about the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Note the three layers of separation required to avoid describing God himself. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Ezekiel 1.27, beginning with that. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him, 
As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> now, the 24 elders. The passage in Isaiah does not mention the elders, but John does. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So thus far, we have a lofty chair in the center. Ezekiel calls it high up, on which Father God is seated. Elsewhere, we read a sea of glass like crystal. One gathers is the material constituting the raised dais or platform for the throne. How I picture it is God on his throne, high and exalted, lofty. That seat is on perhaps on its own platform, but that throne is on the glass-like sea dais on which the 24 elders are seated around the throne. Theirs are almost certainly on the glass dais while God's throne is above theirs. And I, I don't think we can say for sure, but one gets the impression that the entire throne area, including the 24 elders, is the highest point in heaven. It is exalted. <clears throat> now the four creatures. John refers to them as living creatures. The word is zoan. The King James Version says beasts. Isaiah calls them seraphim, transliterated from the Hebrew, which means fiery serpents. In his, his message back to me after reading my notes for this session, Gary Crandall pointed out that he translates seraphim as burners, which matches up with fiery serpents. Seraphim is plural in the Hebrew. Seraph is one seraph. Seraphim is more than one. Ezekiel refers to them as living beings, Hebrew hayah, essentially the same as the Greek zoan in the Revelation. <clears throat> All three passages mention them, but the prophet Ezekiel gives us the most detailed description of these four creatures. Please turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel 1. Only apparent contradictions are that Ezekiel says they had four wings, while John and Isaiah say six, and there's some difference in how the creatures' faces are described. So we'll, described. We'll, we'll take a look at that. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 5 to 6. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. <laughs> which is kind of bizarre. When you read their entire description, you say, oh yeah, I don't know of any humans that look like that. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. This was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. The discrepancy between the accounts of their wings may be solved when we compare the appearance of their faces. Skip down to verse 10 now. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right, and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle on the back. 
Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. The predominant face for each of these was the face of a man. Maybe that's why he says they look like humans. On either side was the face of a lion and a bull. The revelation has calf. Same species, that's pretty close. With the face in the back, opposite the man's, an eagle. A possible explanation for the discrepancies would be that Ezekiel saw them moving, but not turning. He, he repeats in his description of the moment that they were moving, but never turned. They never swiveled. They were just, you know, everywhere they went, they were like this. Back, forward, like that. They never swiveled. Verses 9 and verses 12. This might explain his fewer number of wings. Yet, verse 14 says that the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. So, even though they never turned or swiveled, at any given moment, one could be in front of the prophet, to either side of the prophet, or in front of him. Thus, letting him see that each had four different faces. In contrast, John never mentions them moving, which would explain why he describes the faces differently. John 4, verse 7. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So his description leads us to believe that each had a different face from the other three. If they were facing him, each with a different face, and John never saw them move, he would describe them as each having a different face. If their wings were outstretched, he could more easily see them all. Six. He says there were six. The setting is different in each of these two accounts. John in the Revelation describes a more static, formal scene of worship before the throne. Whereas Ezekiel describes a more chaotic scene with extra elements, for example, wheels with eyes all around. In which everything seems to be moving and swirling about him. Now back to Isaiah 6, one last time. Let's consider Isaiah's iniquity and forgiveness. One last consideration before I draw a conclusion from all this pertinent to God's holiness set against sin in heaven. Look at Isaiah's response to what he has seen. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of the seraphim, creatures or beasts, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Remember what Gary Crandall reminded us, that these Seraphim can be translated burners. Immediately after this, but only after he had been cleansed of his sin, the prophet, in his vision, has a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Lord God. That is, Isaiah could not approach the throne to converse with Father God until his sin had been removed by the seraph. 
Here is my proposition posed in the form of a question. Could it be that these surrounding the throne of God, and especially the four living creatures, are there not just to worship God, but to shield him from the sin in the rest of heaven? Could it be that these surrounding the throne of God, and especially the four living creatures, are there not just to worship God, but to shield him from the sin in the rest of heaven? With good reason, most of us have probably come to associate the 24 elders and the four living creatures with the perpetual worship of the Lord God and his Christ. Isaiah 6.3, Revelation 4, 8 to 11, 5, 8 to 14, 15, 1 to 4, 19, 1 to 7. John MacArthur reminds us, however, that the four creatures serve the Lord in ways far beyond leading in worship. This is what he writes. The four living creatures, like angels in general, and he gives citations, are deeply involved with the coming judgments of the tribulation in which they will play an integral role. They will be there at the outset of divine judgments as one of their number calls forth the rider on the white horse. Chapter 6, 1 to 2. Another will decree economic disaster upon the earth. 6, 6. While another will give the seven angels involved in the bowl judgments their bowls. Chapter 15, verse 7. Thus, my proposition for your consideration is that all these beings, both human and non-human, that surround the throne area, including the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and at times others, combine to encompass God's holiness. It is not as we might say in human terms, that they create a safe zone for God and Christ, as if they are somehow instrumental in creating the holiness and purity of the throne. It's not what I'm saying at all. No. All of that emanates from God himself. These other figures are there to ensure that no sin or evil gets near enough to corrupt the holy throne area. I imagine the four living creatures to be especially instrumental in this. This would go a long way toward answering many of our questions regarding the holiness of God, yet the presence of sin in heaven. Is God holy and pure? Absolutely. Revelation 4.8, and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Can God dwell with sin? No. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God cannot live with sin so much so that he sent his own son to make sure that his people could live with him. That's how much he hates sin. He was willing to sacrifice his own son to get rid of it. Verse 6 in Romans 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile 
toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Does this mean there is no sin or will not be any sin in the present heaven? No. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Finally, could it be that God yearns for a new heaven and new earth as much as do his people? I believe so. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Let me pause the reading just there for a moment. Very typically, not, not in every case, but it's very common in Scripture for sea to represent sin. And I believe that's what it's, how it's being used here. There's no longer any sin. Even in the new, from the old heaven, the old, the original heaven, there's all that sin is gone. It will not be in the new heaven. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God sends it down. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. His tent, his dwelling place is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The original heaven was included in the first things. That has passed away. Now there's a new heaven and a new earth. The bottom line is this. If the present heaven were as perfect and pristine as the future permanent heaven just described, there would be no reason for it to be replaced. God is and has always been utterly and completely holy. It is for this reason he must eventually create a new heavens and earth so that he can dwell in joy and peace and perfect holiness with his beloved people. Now, with fear and trepidation, I point out we have just a few minutes left. Are there any questions or comments? <clears throat> That's a very interesting uh, supposition. A question I'd have then, so how do you envision it working when Satan is then making accusations to the Father about us in the, in the current heaven. If he can't get to the throne because there's the four creatures and the 24 elder, how does that, how do you, how do you think that works? 
In response to that same question, Gary posed that he always thought that, well, God doesn't have to, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And he's, maybe he is where Satan is rather than Satan where he is. And my response to that was, anywhere God is, he's holy. Doesn't really matter where he is. He's holy. You don't walk up and slap him on the back and say, hi, buddy. No, you don't do that. How I've always pictured it is that God is omnipresent. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. And that Satan is, at, when he is doing that, he's in the vicinity. But the 24 elders and the four creatures, the seraphim, they keep the immediate area around God isolated, holy. God can hear anything he wants from any distance he wants. And so Satan doesn't have to be up on the dais, on the near, right, within whispering distance to God. So God, Satan is in heaven. God the Father gives him access to his ear, so to speak. Yet he doesn't have to be right up there by the throne. That's how I've pictured it. Who else? Isla. My question is in regard to the new heavens and the new earth. I know there's lots of different layers to heaven. Not everyone agrees with that, but yes, many do. And, and in God's word, we, we have, Paul says the third heaven. Most consider third heaven to be where God is. The first heaven would be our atmosphere and the stars. The second heaven is the weird one. And a lot of people have conjectures about that, but there's really no solid point. It's, it's some point that is not the first one and not the third. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the fact that it says there'll be a new earth, but heavens is plural. So that one gathers from that at the very least that from our atmosphere up, everything will be new. Or, some say, regarding the earth, remade, renewed. I prefer to think that it's going to be new, especially heaven. God cannot live where sin has dwelt. He wants a new, pristine heaven, and he's going to create a new one. Patty, I too have a headache over this. <laughs> I saw her holding her <laughs> Anything else? Uh-oh. Just want to uh, muddy the waters a little bit. Yeah, sure. You know, as you... As if they need more muddying. As you look at this and that passage and it describes, <clears throat> you know, we can understand Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father because he had a body. But the Father... Has a body. Had and has both, yes. Um, but the Father has no body that we've ever been told. He's spirit. spirit. And yet he has a throne. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know... <laughs> it's almost like some of this is made so that we can, or, or written so that we can have some picture of how God operates, but <laughs> it gets a little, and well, throw, that, throw into there that they are, it is the triune God. They are one. This, this ties into, I, I've written about how we really have an advantage when we're here on earth as regards our worship of God. And what I mean by that is, when I close my eyes in my prayer closet to worship God, I am at his feet, I am bowed at his feet, literally at his feet. I don't think when we're in heaven, we will have that privilege. We will be in a sea of millions upon millions of people worshiping God, and there will still be that separation 
Not, it'll be different, not certainly different from Satan, but we will not be up at his feet clinging to his ankles like I do in my mind when I'm worshiping God. Because we'll just be one among million, millions of worshipers. Uh, the answer, I, there's no answer to your question. Thank you very much. Uh, He's spirit. What do you want? He's spirit. He can do whatever he wants. If spirits sit, fine. Did, Greg, did you have something else? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Even though there's going to be millions of people up there, to me, when it says he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes, it's very personal. Yes. If you're going to use that, turn it on. Be very personal. Uh, so it won't matter if there's millions or thousands. It, God is, God is right there. I wouldn't. For, pre, I wouldn't presume to suggest what it's going to be like. Yeah. All I know is that there's going to be millions of people, millions of us. God on His throne, but but He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. If he chooses to move around heaven, to minister to each one of us, who knows? Who knows? All I know is that I don't think it's going to be that intimate one-on-one -on -one where I am bowed at his feet. Me, alone, one-on-one. -on -one. I don't see that. But maybe there's a way it happens. I wouldn't presume to suggest, but... God can do anything he wants. Yes. Father God, we do exalt you as sovereign. And we acknowledge that you are holy. How that plays out, we will go, we will go even to your presence with questions in our mind how you work that out. But we bow be before your sovereign will, declare you as Lord over our lives right now. In Christ's name, amen.